Now let's open our Bibles to the book of Isaiah, chapter 38. We're going to read verses 1 through 3. In those days, Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, came to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Set your house in order, for you shall die, you shall not recover. Then Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord and said, Please, O Lord, remember how I have walked before you in faithfulness and with a whole heart, and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. Let's move to chapter 39, still in the book of Isaiah, and we'll start reading from verse 1 through 8. And at that time, Merodach Baladan, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent envoys with letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he heard he had, that he had been sick and had recovered. And Hezekiah welcomed them gladly. And he showed them his treasure house, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oil, his whole armory, all that was found in his storehouses. There was nothing in his house or in all his realm that Hezekiah did not show them. Then Isaiah the prophet came to King Hezekiah and said to him, What did these men say, and from where did they come to you? Hezekiah said, They have come to me from a far country from Babylon. He said, What have they seen in your house? Hezekiah answered, They have seen all that is in my house. There is nothing in my storehouses that I did not show them. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons whom, who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon." Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, the word of the Lord that you have spoken is good, for he thought there will be peace and security in my days. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Thank you, Myla. Good afternoon, Echo Church. Good to be with you guys. We are continuing our study through Isaiah, obviously, uh, this week, and we're actually in our ninth uh, sermon through Isaiah, and we're already, we're already in Isaiah 38 and 39, so we're making, we're making good time, we're making good time. Uh, so uh, last week, we hit the first half of this story. This story really covers four chapters, uh, and in chapters 36 and 37, we saw Hezekiah in a desperate situation. King Hezekiah, king of the south, of the southern region in Judah there of Israel, was in a desperate situation. And what we saw was him call upon his God in a desperate situation. And so I want to talk about that in a minute, but I would like to pray. I, and I'm ask you guys to pray with me. Just like last week, my voice is still not back. So I'm going to pray for God to make this clear and uh, for me to not cough and have a fit of coughing right in the middle of preaching. So let's go to the Lord right now. Father, we're desperate for you. You have taught us in your word 
to be desperate for you. You've taught us in your word that when we are weak, you are strong. I confess to you, my voice feels weak. I confess to you, my body feels weak. And, and I, I, what I ask right now is that your word would shine forth for your glory for your people because that's what this time is about, that we would honor and glorify you as your word is revealed to us. So God, would you be with, with my mind? Would you be with my, my lungs and my throat? And would you be with my whole body as I have a responsibility before you that you have given me all of the energy to be able to do that responsibility? So God, would you come and would you bring truth and would my words be your words this afternoon? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. As I said, Hezekiah had come before the Lord in a desperate situation. The king of Assyria last week had come up and surrounded Jerusalem, and he had said, Hezekiah, give up. Open up the doors to your gate and let my soldiers in. Don't fight against me, because what can your God do? What would he possibly do against me? Do you not know that there have been other gods of other cities that I have already destroyed and taken down? So what is your God? And Hezekiah took the letter that King Hezekiah had written, that the king of Assyria had written to him, and he goes before the house of God, the temple, and he simply lays down prostrate. No, no words, no answer just simply takes the letter, the problem, the cause of the problem, the source of the problem, lays it before God as if to say, God, do something about this because I have nothing. I am completely desperate before you. And we saw at the end of chapter 37 that God answered that prayer. And he did it in an incredible way. He sent an angel, it says an angel of the Lord, that night, the army camped around, circled around. An angel of the Lord killed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. And the army got up and left. There was nothing left for them to do. The king of Assyria himself heard a rumor. He went back to his uh, home uh, capital city of Nineveh. And while he's worshiping in the house of his God, chapter 37 tells us his own sons killed him. It's a gruesome story. It's one of those ones you go, ooh, man, did we have to have all that detail in the Bible? Let me explain to you why it's there for a second, because there's an irony in this whole thing. The king of Assyria had mocked God for not being able to protect his people. Do you remember that? King of Assyria comes and says, God is not going to be able to protect you. He's not going to be able to do this. Give up. Your God will not save you. That's the king of Assyria speaking to Hezekiah. Then, at the end of his life, the king of Assyria goes back to the very temple of his God. The very place that, according to the ancient Near East, if a god has any power at all, that god has power in his own temple. That's the place where that god's going to have power, right? And so according to, to anybody who sort of had an ancient Near East viewpoint and worldview at that time, it's like, well, if his God's going to protect him anywhere, his God is going to protect him there. And what does our God do, the true and living God? Out of judgment, God says, you're going to die in, your, in the temple of your God. 
by the hands of your sons. It's brutal, but it is a, it is a point that's being made that the gods uh, surrounding Israel are nothing and that we serve the one true and living God. So that is Hezekiah. That's his story. We all go, yes. We all go, that's an awesome story of being released from this bondage of this army. And when things were at their worst, Hezekiah was at his best. But then, as the story goes forward, the danger subsides. But now we see a different side to Hezekiah. Now we see the Hezekiah that is no longer in desperation before the Lord. Now we see the Hezekiah that is sort of at his ease and at his leisure. And that's what we're going to see now. Here's the main point of what we're about to cover in the sermon today. If you're taking notes, the main point is this. Hezekiah, by loving his life, placed his people in peril. But Jesus, by giving up his life, granted his people salvation. I'm going to say that one more time. Hezekiah, by loving his life, placed his people in peril. Jesus, by giving up his life, granted his people salvation. So what I'm arguing today from these two chapters is that we're actually getting a glimpse at two different kings this afternoon. King Hezekiah is one of them, and here's the, what I'm going to have to argue for. King Jesus is the other one. Now, some of you, if you've read these chapters, are going, what? Where's Jesus in chapters 38 and 39? He, he, I don't see Jesus there. Why? How can you bring Jesus up and talk about him in the main point of this sermon when I don't see him here in the text? And that is what I'm going to argue for right now. That is what I want to help us understand because I am saying that there's a comparison of one king to another king, and the failure of one king, and the incredible success of the other king. How can I say that? I want to explain that for the next few minutes. First, I want us to understand where we are in the book of Isaiah, first of all. The book of Isaiah divides into really three parts. And we, we've talked about this actually at the very beginning of Isaiah. It divides into part one, which is typically called the book of the king, the book of the king. So, and that's where we've been so far throughout Isaiah. We've been talking about the kingship of the Lord. You guys remember Isaiah chapter six, where Isaiah says, I saw the Lord seated on the throne. The whole section of Isaiah is about God as the sovereign king overall. What, is, what were those 24 chapters that we covered in one sermon about? The Lord's reign over the world, over the entire globe and every people group within it. So God is king. Book one, chapters one through 37. But notice that today we are shifting. We are going into a new section because chapters 38 through 55 are called the book of the servant. And some of you may recall those famous, that famous chapter, Isaiah chapter 53, which is called one of the servant songs, where the servant suffers on behalf of his people, that his people would be set free, that he bore their iniquities, it says. So 
we are moving now into the section that highlights the servant. And of course, the idea of the whole book of Isaiah is that the king and the servant are one. That's what we're seeing here in Isaiah. So we're at the beginning of the book of the servant, and of course, we will go later on to the book of the anointed conqueror, and that's the portion of Isaiah where we read all about the return of Jesus Christ to this earth. But right now, where we are right now is in the book of the servant, which means we are about to hear all about this prophetic servant that is going to come who will be perfectly obedient to the Lord. This servant, what characterizes this servant is that he is obedient to the Lord. That's what we see about him in Isaiah. So isn't it interesting now, consider this, if, if I'm right about the division of the book, consider this now, the first two chapters of this book that's about this coming obedient servant, the first two chapters are about Hezekiah and his disobedience. Consider that for a minute. Two chapters about Hezekiah and his disobedience. Why would that be the case? Well, what I want to argue for this afternoon is that this is Hezekiah's, here's what we call it, his fall narrative. His fall narrative. What, what is a fall narrative? In the Bible, a fall narrative is a story about a person in the Bible. So it's a story that we'll read about a person usually taking place after a great act of obedience that displays their sinful nature and reminds us that they are not the Messiah. Now, you might think, why, why would the Bible do this? Why does the Bible need to have fall narratives. And by the way, we're going to start, we're going to talk about a few different fall narratives that happen in the Bible. And you might say, why does this need to happen? And in order to really understand why it needs to happen, you need to understand something else about the Old Testament, that first half of our Bibles that you have in your lap right there, that the Old Testament essentially is highlighting a search for the Messiah, that the Old Testament is about the search, the quest for the one who is actually going to come and set people free. That, if I had to sum up the Old Testament, I would sum it up just that way. Ever since the prophecy in Genesis 3.15 that said that a seed or an offspring of Eve would one day crush the head of a serpent. There has been a search for that offspring. Let's go to that text now. I want you to see the first text that sets us off on our journey to try to find out the one that's going to reverse the curse and be obedient where Adam had failed. Let's look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And that's what the ESV says there, but I would like to show you that there's an alternative for bruise there. And I'm going to put up on the screen, uh, it's got some Hebrew in it, but I want you to notice next to those highlighted Hebrew words, 
that there, it, there does seem to be in a, in a Hebrew dictionary some different meanings for that word that we see there for bruise. The first one that we see up on top is simply the word to crush. And so could we read there, like many have, you will crush his head. He will crush your head, serpent. And then the same word seems to at times indicate the idea of snatching out at or snapping at the way a, the way a snake would, would lunge out and would attack at something. So the idea here is that this serpent maybe is going after his ankle, but he's going to stomp its head. And there's a prophecy here. And who is the one doing it? Well, somebody who comes from Eve's body, a human being. A human being will be the one to ultimately crush the head of this serpent. The serpent that brought about the fall into this world, the sinfulness of this world. And somewhere, someday, somebody who comes from Eve, one of her seed, is going to crush the head of that snake and break his power and end what he began. And so what goes from this point forward is a search for the one who would come to do this. And this would take hours to go through the Bible and just lay out all of the search and all that we see that comes from result. But let me say this, the one who comes is not simply one who is mighty as if they have muscles as if they're warlike, as if they have a great army at their disposal. The one who comes that we're specifically looking for, who's going to come and break this curse, is the one who succeeded where Adam failed. In other words, obedience is the strength of this one who will come to crush the head of the serpent because the very thing Adam didn't have in that moment was obedience. And so we have this one who is going to come and is going to be obedient perfectly where Adam failed. So it's not military prowess, it's a heart that beats with righteousness for the Lord where Adam's did not. And the people of God in the Old Testament were looking for this person to emerge. So imagine you don't know that Jesus is the Messiah. And imagine you're simply reading through your Bible the way anybody would read through a book from beginning to end, and you're working from book to book to book, and you've heard this prophecy now about this one who is coming, and then the next person that shows up, you think, well, maybe this is the one, right? And that was Cain. Oops. That didn't work so well, did it? Cain wasn't the one. But we move on. And we see other figures show up. And these figures at times seem to show incredible righteousness. They seem to be obedient where Adam failed. Let's consider Noah for a minute. Faithful to God when the world was against him. Built the ark on dry land before there was any rain, trusting that God would indeed, as he said, flood the earth. Obedient to the Lord and faithful to him. But at the end of Noah's story, we have his fall narrative. Genesis 9, 20 to 28. After the flood subsides, Noah becomes a vineyard owner and gets drunk. He, quote, 
lays uncovered in his tent, and his sons have to cover him. And we're not quite sure what that Hebrew means, but there may be more going on there. That's all I'll say. We're not quite sure what that phrase, lays uncovered, means. How about David? David shows up later in the Bible. Is he not called a man after God's own heart? Is he not obedient in so many ways when he could have been disobedient? We start to get this, well, maybe that's him. Maybe he's the one who's going to come. In fact, in 2 Samuel chapter 10, and you'd have to read Hebrew to catch this, but in 2 Samuel chapter 10, he defeats somebody in battle. Do you know who he defeats? He defeats the son of Nahash. You know what Nahash means in Hebrew? Serpent. He defeats a guy called the son or the seed of the serpent. And we're going, there it is. David is it. Next chapter, 2 Samuel chapter 11. David lusts after a woman bathing on a rooftop, commands her to come to his bedchamber, and tries to cover up his sin by having her husband killed. And we missed Moses, led the people out of the bondage of Egypt, and was, taught, was said to talk with God as a man talks to his friend, faithful to God. And what do we see? Numbers chapter 20, verses 10 through 13. Moses strikes the rock when God says to speak to it, and God tells Moses he will not lead the people into the promised land because he did that. We see fall narrative after fall narrative after fall narrative in the Bible. Why? The Bible is keying us into one point. This person is not the Messiah that you're looking for. We need to keep looking. We need to keep working through because this isn't it. Fall narratives seem to happen to uniquely obedient people. In other words, really bad people in the Bible don't need fall narratives. Their whole life is just a fall narrative, right? But they happen to seem to happen to really uniquely obedient people. They often happen after their highest moment of obedience. So I believe that what we are looking at here in these chapters of Isaiah is Hezekiah's fall narrative. He has just had the moment of his highest point of obedience. He has just laid that letter out before the Lord saying, Lord, you do it. And we're, and we're thinking, maybe Hezekiah is the one we have been waiting for. You know why? Because now by this time, we've learned something new about the Messiah. We've learned that the Messiah doesn't just come from Eve's body. We've learned that the Messiah comes from David's body. That means that the king's of David are now the line that we are now looking for, for the Messiah. And guess who Hezekiah is? He's one of David's grandchildren. I mean, great, great, you know, working down. He's from David's body. Could he be the Messiah? What an incredible righteousness that we saw in Hezekiah last week. And so now, this week, we see his fall narrative Here's how the chapters divide up that we're going to look at this afternoon. Chapter 38 is just simply Hezekiah's desire to keep his life. Chapter 38 is his desire to keep his life. Chapter 39 is Hezekiah's sin with the Babylonian envoys. Let's look at how these verses now show how Hezekiah 
the one who is not the Messiah compares to Jesus Christ, the one who is the Messiah. Let's look at the two. Isaiah chapter 38, verse 1. In those days, Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, came to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, set your house in order, for you shall die. You shall not recover. So Hezekiah becomes sick, and the Lord tells Hezekiah, The sickness is going to result in your death, Hezekiah. And I want to say something right on the front end here. All of us, to some extent, fear death. All of us, every single person in this room. And probably all of us, to a certain extent, if we became sick, really sick, would do what we could to be healed. Would we not? We would do what we could do to be healed. And what would come along with that would be praying to God that God would miraculously heal us. Would we not? I think every one of us in this room would do that. And so it isn't sinful to ask God for healing. It isn't sinful to go before God and ask Him to, to, to do the miraculous in your life in order to bring about healing. It isn't a sinful desire to desire more days when it's uncertain what God is going to do with you, okay? It's not sinful to do that. For, for instance, let me, let me back that up with the Apostle Paul for a moment. Philippians chapter 1, verses 21 through 24. For to me to live is Christ, okay, there's living, and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two, the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. So Paul says, literally, I don't know how to pray. He's in prison. He doesn't know if that prison sentence is going to end in his execution. He says, I don't know. Do I pray for my, 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 for my death to come? Or do I pray for more life because I'm doing ministry and I'm, I'm serving the Lord and I'm not sure how to pray? The point being there is that the Apostle Paul himself is, is willing to say, well, yeah, that could be right for me to just pray for more days. But the point is that neither is sinful, because for Paul to go on living is to live for Christ. And if the Lord takes him, the Lord takes him. So don't hear me say today that asking God that your cancer will not result in your death is somehow sinful. Don't hear me say that, and don't hear the Bible say that, because there's an important distinction between you and Hezekiah. Ready? Here it is. The Lord told Hezekiah that he would die. Anybody in here been told that you're going to die by the Lord? Okay, that's good. The Lord told Hezekiah, this is my will. When we get sick and we don't know the will of God, we have the freedom to be able to say, God, would you heal me? Would you help me? knowing that if it is God's secret will, that He will not heal you, He will act according to what He wants to do. But we can come to Him, and we can ask Him. And so that's a good thing. 
But Hezekiah is directly being disobedient to the Lord because the Lord told him, this is what's going to happen. But, I, but Hezekiah is going to kick and scream against it. Let's look at him kick and scream. Isaiah 38, 2 and 3. Then Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and he prayed to the Lord and said, Please, O Lord, remember how I have walked before you in faithfulness and with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. So number one, we see of Hezekiah's response is that Hezekiah prays, but his prayer is a trade agreement with God. Hezekiah's prayer is a trade agreement. It's a bartering tool with God. Notice that he says, Please, O Lord, remember how I have walked before you in faithfulness and with a whole heart. God, do you see what I'm bringing to the table here? Do you see the bartering that I'm now doing with you? Look at what I got. And let me just say flat out, don't do this with God. Don't do this. And there's two reasons. First, because this isn't how God operates. God does not operate, the universe does not operate on a bartering system. We may set up a bartering system amongst human beings on this earth. We may have a market economy. God doesn't operate on a market economy. Why? Because God is the giver of all things. So God doesn't barter. God doesn't say, wow, you're, you're making a pretty good case here. I don't know. I, I need a little more righteousness from you. Can I get a little more? Okay, that deal. He doesn't do that. But Hezekiah seems to think that he can operate like this with God. Here's the second reason why you don't do this. Second is you have nothing to barter with. Hezekiah has grossly overcalculated his own righteousness here. We already know in Hezekiah's life, by the way, we already know that in the past, Hezekiah had gone to Egypt for horses and chariots in order to protect himself against the nations around him. You know that there's one thing, well, there's a lot of things, but there's one thing God has said over and over and over again to Israel, don't go back to Egypt. Don't go back there. Don't go back there for horses and chariots thinking that that's where you're going to be safe because it's a representation throughout history of going back to worldly resources. And Hezekiah had already gone back there to the point where the king of Assyria says, I'm laughing at you because you're trusting in Egypt over there. And guess what? By that time, the king of Assyria had already defeated Egypt. He had already defeated the one that supposedly was so strong that Hezekiah was going to go back to. So we've already seen Hezekiah do what God has simply said, don't do. And if Hezekiah did have some righteousness he could tell God about, let me ask you this, is that Hezekiah's righteousness or is that because the Lord gave him the ability to be righteous in that moment? You see, all that we have is from the Lord. So when we start to barter with the Lord, it's as if the thing that the Lord has given us, we're owning for ourselves and we think came from somehow some good place inside of us when that's not true. God says you have nothing to barter with. You can't bring righteousness to this table. 
And if there is one place where we today get the gospel wrong, it's that we add little bits of our own righteousness to Christ's righteousness. We're willing to accept Christ into our life, but we're willing to retain that, you know, we did a little bit. And here's what Paul tells us in the book of Galatians. If you do that, if you say, I'm going to retain just a little bit of my own righteousness here, he says the whole thing is null and void, all of it. So Hezekiah thinks he can barter with God. But here's the corollary. Ready? Jesus Christ was the most righteous person ever to walk this earth, and he never tried to barter with God. If anybody could barter with God over righteousness, it would be Jesus and yet he never did. How do we know? Matthew 26, 39. You may remember this verse. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's about to be arrested and sent to the cross. This is the moment in Jesus' earthly life where the temptation has reached its absolute max to simply not go to the cross. I don't want to go. And he prays this, and going a little further... He fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. But notice the words that follow. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. So here Jesus, like Hezekiah, has been told he's going to die. Hezekiah tries to barter with whatever measly righteousness he thinks he has to, to save his life. And here Jesus, no bartering, simply says, your will be done. Jesus could have bartered with God better than anyone who ever lived. Jesus could have said, I'm done. But Jesus died well. And Hezekiah did not. Jesus submitted to God in his last earthly moments. Hezekiah kicked against God in order to get more time. Let's look at number two, what happens in these first, for these first verses. In Isaiah chapter 38, we see there in verse 3, Hezekiah weeps for his earthly life as if that is all there is. Hezekiah weeps for his earthly life as if that is all there is. I want you to notice something in verse 3. Hezekiah wept bitterly, which in Hebrew, I think it's even better. It's typical Hebrew, but it's, it's he wept a great weeping. He bawled like a baby. Now, I am not saying, again, as I said before, that weeping because we believe our life is coming to an end is not as if that's not an okay thing to do. But I want you to hear 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. Listen to what Paul says here in 1 Thessalonians. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. Now, that word is a euphemism for death. In other words, he's talking about those Christians who have already died in the Thessalonian church. 
And he says, I don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about them, that you might not grieve as others who do not have hope or who have no hope. I want you to think about that verse very carefully. There's a grieving that happens for those who have no hope. What does that mean then? If there's a grieving for those who have no hope, there's a grieving for those who do have hope. One of them grieves as if this life is all there is. That's it. It's over. I'm going to blackness and darkness and the end of all things has happened. I will never rise again. And the other grieves knowing that there's a resurrection. The other grieves knowing that this is simply the beginning of new life for them. Can there be a grieving for that? Sure. There's a fear. There's an unknown. There's a, maybe a pain, right? And let me ask you this, which is Hezekiah acting like? Is Hezekiah acting more like the one who's grieving as those who have no hope? Or is he acting like those who are grieving as if there's a resurrection? Let's go back to Isaiah and let's see how Hezekiah is understanding his death. Because he's about to give a psalm, a poem, right now, about this death that he's going to experience. And he tells us how he's viewing this. Isaiah chapter 38, verses 10 through 13, he says, I said in the middle of my days, I must depart. I am consigned to the gates of Sheol, which means the grave. For the rest of my years, I said, I shall not see the Lord, the Lord in the land of the living. I shall look on man no more among the inhabitants of the world. My dwelling is plucked up and removed from me like a shepherd's tent. Like a weaver, I have rolled up my life. He cuts me off from the loom. From day to night, you bring me to an end. I calmed myself until morning. Like a lion, he breaks all my bones. From day to night, you bring me to an end. Now, let me ask you, having just read that, is Hezekiah grieving as those who have hope, or is he grieving as those who have no hope? And I don't fully know at this time what the worldview was for Israel regarding the resurrection. I don't fully, I'm just telling you, there's scholars that probably have looked in this, I don't fully know what an Old Testament Israelite at this time would have understood about the resurrection. But I can tell you this, he is grieving like someone who does not have in his thinking a resurrection. Hezekiah was living like this life was it. And he was grieving his life as those who have no hope. That's Hezekiah. Now let's see the corollary in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ gave up his life freely for his people, knowing that death could not hold him. He freely gave up his life because he knew that death had no power over him. Literally as if death is this thing that has power. This, would you allow me the metaphor for a minute? As if this thing who has power, who, who for many who die can just grab them and rip them and take them away. 
But to say that death has no power over him is to say that death tries to go grip him and simply cannot. It means that the moment he passes from this life, there is nothing to hold him back from eternal life. Let's consider something together. We were not originally supposed to die. Did you know that? We weren't supposed to die. We weren't created, Adam and Eve, created to die. Death comes because of sin. And so at the fall, we began to die. But what happens when Jesus Christ, who has no sin, dies? It's kind of one of those paradoxes, right? You're sitting there, and if you really think about it, you go, well, wait a minute. Why did he die in the first place if he had no sin, right? That would be one of the questions we would ask if we were working through this paradox. Why would you die in the first place if you have no sin? And, I, and the answer that I believe Scripture says is because it wasn't his sin. He died, but he died for sins that were not his, the only person on the planet that has ever had this happen because everyone else died either with their sin or they died in Christ. It wasn't his sin, it was your sin, and it was my sin. It was those who have put their trust in him whose sins it was. So what happens when sin captures one who was actually innocent of all sin, but died for others? And, and, and something to the effect of spits him out, can't hold him, can't keep him. Because the reason that sin came into the world in the first place was because of Adam's sin, and Jesus didn't have it. So it spits him out. Here's what 1 Corinthians 15, 54, and 56 say. Here's Paul just like, I guess he's singing. There's like a poem or something that he is, is quoting here. Here's what he says. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. According to this, what that verse is saying is that when there is no sting, when there is no sin, death cannot hold a person. Death loses its stinger. You imagine a scorpion, just death, just whack, hitting people with its scorpion venom. And then you chop that stinger off and it's trying to hit people and it just has nothing. Death has nothing. Now here's the shocking thing about 1 Corinthians 15. It's not talking about Jesus. It's talking about those who are in Jesus. Look at the next verse. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. For whom does death not have a stinger? For whom can death not grab and hold and keep? You, if you're in Christ. That's what the resurrection means. It means it tries to grab you for a second and it can't. Which means that the moment from passing from this life to the next, I believe, based upon certain verses of Scripture, is instantaneous. 
And some have said, will it hurt? I don't know. I've never done it. But, but I will tell you this. I've seen people suffering before death. And so I might tell you that it will hurt perhaps before death, but the moment of death is simply a transformation to eternal life because death will not hold you. It'll spit you out of its mouth. Now here's the corollary, Christians. Live like that. Don't live like this life is all there is. That's what Hezekiah is doing here. And when he gets confronted with his own death, he simply cannot handle it. How many people in this world today are like that? When confronted with their own death, simply cannot handle it. How much are we doing today to simply try to make death this thing that we push away? We don't do funerals anymore, right? We do celebration of life ceremonies. I'm not in, in, insulting you if that's what a family member or somebody else wanted to do. I'm simply saying, do you notice the trend now in society? We don't want to talk about death because we are absolutely terrified of it. And all I want to say is to you, Christian, don't live like that. Live free. How many Christians still have anxiety over their coming death can you begin with other believers around you, maybe grab some of the other members of the church, to begin to pray and to begin to attack that anxiety in your life with truth? Because that truth is here that says that you are not going to die in that sense. The Bible calls it the second death because it's explaining the fact that, yes, your heart may stop. Yes, your brain waves may stop. But that's simply a transformation to eternal life where we get to be free from sin and face-to-face -face with Jesus for the first time ever. This life is just the beginning. And the question is, will we actually live that way? Will we be more like our King Jesus or will we be more like King Hezekiah? How then should we live? Should we live like Hezekiah? No, Christ has freed us. Death cannot hold us. For those of you that have put your trust in Christ, this earthly life is not all you have. It is actually just a shadow of what your eternal life is. This life, here, I love C.S. Lewis here. He says, we think that this is the world that's real, and then we go to some ethereal world where we sit on clouds and play harps. He says, what we don't understand is that this world is the shadow. This world is the one that isn't real. And when we get to heaven, we will find a greater reality than we have ever experienced before, a greater physicality of our being than we have ever had before. The Bible says no, no, no mind can understand. No eye has seen what God has prepared for us. So can you weep as a Christian if you get news of a terminal disease? Yes. Yes. And Romans 12 says that we as the members of this church should weep with those who weep. We will weep with you. But we will weep as those who have hope. We will weep as those who have a resurrection. Will it hurt to die? I don't know. But death is an instantaneous transformation to life. Death will run from you, and eternal life is yours because you are in Christ. 
and we will see him face to face. Okay, so we're seeing now Hezekiah acting as if there is simply no life after this. Now I want to see what comes as a result for the people. We're going to finish this quickly. Um, we're going to see now that Hezekiah allows these Babylonian envoys. By the way, they come to him. The reason they're coming to him in the first place is because the, the Babylonian king hears that he got well. So he sends him a little get well present. That's basically what it is. He sends a bunch of guys and he sends them a get well present. But listen, envoys, envoys, however you want to say it, envoys, envoys are never just envoys. <coughs> and that's true today. Um, <coughs> Our CIA has headquarters in every embassy in every country in the world. I don't know if you knew that. Our CIA, it's, it's open, it's not a secret. Our CIA has a headquarters in every embassy in, in, in every country in the world. Why? Because the delegates from that country that go out, their job is also to look and to see and to kind of spy, sort of a legal espionage, if you will, the land around them. What's the land like? Are they in upheaval? Are they peaceful? What's the, what's the gross domestic product? What's the, what's the economic situation like? They're just looking, and the CIA is there just gathering data. They know tons about countries, and they even publish tons about countries. All the secret stuff they do, I don't know, but the, 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 the sort of above-board stuff happens through embassies with envoys. People that are from our country working in other countries, and that's their job to represent our country in that country. So he sends a bunch of envoys over, and then Hezekiah, like a dummy, just shows the Babylonian king everything that he has. Now, and here's the point. Hezekiah in his pride brought enemies down upon his people in the future. But let's set that beside Jesus for a second. We're going to close like this. But Jesus in his humility died so his people would live forever free of all enemies. So what did Hezekiah do? He brought enemies down upon his people. The only difference is it wasn't in his lifetime why? Those envoys go back, what do they do? They write in the royal records, here's how much gold Judah had, here's how much many spices, here's how many horses, here's their weaponry, here's their ability to be able to bring an army together. Here's all the information we need because the dummy let us see it all. And at that time, the king was a fairly weak king, a guy named Merodach Baladan. Didn't really do much. But a hundred years from that point, a new king would arise. You know what his name is? Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar, when he's deciding to bring his empire to full mass, looks around and he starts to read in his royal you know, treasury and the royal records, hmm, Judah seems to have a lot of stuff. And they seem to have a really puny army. Let's take them out. So Hezekiah, in his pride, brings enemies upon his people a hundred years from that point. That's not a king. That's, that's not the kind of protection and love we ask of a king. But here's Jesus. He gives his life 
that once and for all, all of our enemies, and the first and foremost of which is death, would never be able to touch us again. That's Jesus. So Hezekiah is one of those people that we thought for a second might have been the one to come. But we find out for these two chapters that he doesn't even compare. And his lack of righteousness is his fall. It's his fall narrative to signal to us that there's another who is coming, and another did come, and his name was Jesus Christ. And we see now from this side of history, looking back, that it was truly him all along and the one who came to save us from the, our sins. Jesus was the one prophesied in Genesis 3.15 who through his perfect obedience would crush the head of the serpent and reverse the curse. And it's happening now in the heart of every believer who trusts in him. And one day when he returns, it will physically happen in this earth. There will be a reversal of the curse that God brought upon Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3, and we await that day. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we call upon you now Holy Spirit to come and to just quicken and enliven our hearts and our, our worship of you. Lord, it is, it is you whose death allows us to be able to come in and enter into the presence of God. And, and, and so amazing that death could not hold you because your sin wasn't your sin and it spit you out, and three days later you rose from the dead and ultimately ascended to the right hand of the Father, bringing with you a whole army of people who would one day trust in you and would have their sins paid for, and they would rise like you rose from the dead, where sin would not have anything to do with them either because they're simply... A death had nothing to do with them either because there simply was no sin left to punish. Lord, what a glorious thing. What a glorious truth. And as we celebrate communion now together, may we celebrate that moment where death was defeated on the cross because your blood was poured out and your body was broken. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.